Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. For our 20th episode, we're going to talk about two four-letter words in pediatrics, alti and brew. Apparent life-threatening events and brief, resolved, unexplained events are how we describe those moments where a baby does something that scares his parents enough to seek medical attention. These cases are hard because by the time the baby sees a doctor, everything looks fine. The challenge for us as providers is to decide what's normal baby behavior and what's a sign of something more serious, and to figure out how to separate the two. In this episode, we'll go through the most recent guideline from the American Academy of Pediatrics, along with reviewing a little bit about what to do with patients who fall outside the AAP's flowchart. We'll start with a couple definitions. The term ALTI has been around since the 1986 NIH Conference on Infantile Apnea. Before that, these episodes were actually called Near-Miss Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, so you can understand why they made the change. Alties have a really broad definition. Any event that is frightening to the observer and is characterized by some combination of apnea, color change, change in muscle tone, choking, or gagging. While the term alti is a lot better than near-miss sudden infant death, there are still some problems with the term. In particular, something that is concerning to the caregiver isn't necessarily life-threatening, but the term itself reinforces that perception. That brings us to the 2016 American Academy of Pediatrics guideline, which was a big deal because it was the first clinical practice guideline from the AAP to specifically address these episodes, and the first thing they did was change the name to BREW, or Brief, Resolved, Unexplained Event. The idea behind the new term was to reflect that these events are transient and don't have a clear cause, and to get away from describing them as life-threatening. The updated definition is an event occurring in an infant under one year old where the observer reports less than one minute of cyanosis or pallor, absent, decreased, or irregular breathing, significant change in muscle tone, or altered responsiveness that's not explained by a likely or known medical condition, and that results in return to baseline with normal vital signs and appearance. Those last two parts, not caused by a likely or known medical condition, and a return to baseline, are important because they set the tone for everything that comes next in terms of risk assessment and workup. If the baby doesn't come back to baseline after the event, that gives you something to treat in the moment and some extra help in getting to a diagnosis. The same goes for if something points you towards a known or suspected medical condition. If two babies come in with episodes of cyanosis, you're going to have a different approach to the one with a 4 out of 6 heart murmur than to the one with a normal exam. We're going to keep coming back to this point as the episode goes on, but a good history and exam are the most important parts of workup for these events. Beyond changing the term used to describe the episodes, the AAP guideline also aimed to give an evidence-based approach to risk assessment as well as workup and management for lower-risk patients. They would have liked to include recommendations for higher-risk babies, but there wasn't enough good quality evidence to come to a consensus. For risk assessment, the committee reviewed the literature to figure out which babies are unlikely to have recurrent events or an undiagnosed serious condition. They determined that babies 60 or more days old, born at or after 32 weeks gestational age with a corrected age of 45 or more weeks post-conception, who presented with a first-time event lasting less than one minute without concerning history or physical findings or CPR performed by a trained medical provider were the least likely to have any significant problems. We'll go through that again because it's important. 1. 60 days or older. 2. Born at or after 32 weeks, corrected to 45 weeks or more, so at least 5 weeks older than their original due date. 3. First-time event. 4. The event lasted less than 1 minute. 5. 
no CPR given by a trained medical provider, and six, no concerning findings on history or physical exam. A patient has to meet all of those criteria to fit into the scope of the guideline. If not, they're in a higher risk group that there wasn't enough evidence to make any conclusions about. For kids who are in the lower risk group, the AAP does have some guidance for you. You should get an exceptionally thorough history. What was happening before, during, and after the event? Who was there? What was the baby doing? Did the event stop suddenly or gradually? Did someone have to do something, or did it stop all on its own? Have there been any recent illnesses or sick contacts, diet changes, environmental changes, everything you can think to ask. On exam, pay close attention to tone, signs of bleeding or trauma, and heart and lung sounds. All of this is important because in the end you have a baby who did something scary but looks totally fine right now, and every little thing that can give you some kind of direction helps. Beyond the H&P, the guideline is mostly things that you shouldn't do for low-risk bruise. You can consider admission for continuous pulse ox and serial observation, but there's no need to admit just for cardiorespiratory monitoring, provided you can arrange follow-up within 24 hours. Chest x-rays, blood gases, echocardiograms, blood counts, urinalysis, lumbar puncture, and evaluations for reflux are all low yield for babies in the low-risk group. That's not to say they can't be useful in the right patient. It's just that as they reviewed the literature and there are 128 studies included in the citations for the guideline, every baby that had a positive result on those tests had some other characteristic that put them into a higher-risk category. As for things to do, there isn't much for the low-risk group. A 12-lead EKG is a low-risk test that can help pick up QT abnormalities, cardiomyopathies, and congenital electron channel disorders, but the AAP only makes a weak recommendation for doing it they make a slightly stronger recommendation for CPR training for parents. Not necessarily because it improves outcomes, but because it helps parents feel more confident and empowered without increasing their anxiety. After that, the biggest thing to do is educate the parents and keep them involved in the decision-making process. We should spend a little bit of time on reflux, because it's common and falls into an in-between kind of area. More than two-thirds of infants have reflux, and it can lead to coughing, gagging, and choking-like symptoms that parents get worried about. If you suspect reflux, usually because of something in the history, like the episodes happening while the baby's laying flat after a feed, it's technically not a brew because you're attributing the event to a likely medical condition, which is outside the AAP's definition. The guideline does say that you can consider a workup for reflux in infants with repeated brew episodes, although in practice I generally see people just start reflux precautions with more frequent, smaller feeds and upright positioning after meals without worrying about any extra diagnostic testing. It's great that there's an evidence-based guideline out there for brief, resolved, unexplained events in infants, but the downside is that it only offers suggestions on what to do for a pretty narrowly defined low-risk group. That leaves a lot of cases without a nice, neat guideline, especially for hospitalists like me. So, what are we supposed to do for everybody else? There's not a ton of evidence out there, but there's enough to get started. The American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't have a broad guideline for Altis, but they do have a guideline in Italy, and it was just updated in 2017. The Italians aren't as eager to get rid of the term Alti for severe idiopathic episodes, but they do like brew for the lower-risk babies and agree with the risk stratification calling the baby low risk only if they're full term and 60 days old or correct to 45 weeks if they're born early. It's the first time event and it lasted less than a minute, 
no CPR was given, and there are no concerning findings. For infants who are higher risk, they recommend 24 to 72 hours in the hospital and are a little quicker to get a diagnostic workup. They actually recommend that all higher risk infants have a complete blood count, basic chemistry panel, blood glucose, blood gases, C-reactive protein, procalcitonin, urinalysis, and EKG in addition to at least 24 hours of cardiorespiratory monitoring. For everything else, they recommend following the history, EEG for suspected seizures, cultures if you're worried about infection, things like that. That's a lot more testing than we do here, but Italy has a national health plan, so they don't have to worry about insurance companies. Then again, their infant mortality rate is 3.3 per 1,000 compared to 5.8 per 1,000 here in the U.S., so they might be onto something. Still, I'm generally inclined to go with the less is more approach and follow the patient history like the AAP says. And there's good evidence to say that the throw all the tests against the wall and see what's positive approach isn't the best. In 2005, Donald Brand, Robin Altman, Carrie Pertill, and Karen Edwards published a study looking at the yield of diagnostic tests for patients with Alties. They reviewed records from 243 infants who were admitted to a tertiary care center to see what tests actually made a difference. Patients had an average of 15.5 tests ordered, although that's a little bit skewed because they counted the components of panels individually, so a chem panel that included sodium, potassium, chloride, and bicarb would count as four tests even though it was only one order in blood draw. Out of the 3,776 tests that were ordered, only 669, 17.7%, had positive findings, and only 224 of those positive findings contributed to the diagnosis that was made. In case you don't have your calculator handy, that's 33.5% positive results and just 5.9% of total test results that made a positive contribution to the diagnosis. Some common tests that contributed 0% of the time? Blood gases, coagulation studies, and EKGs. As you might expect, the diagnostic yield was generally better for patients who had some clues in their history or physical exam. In all, 49% of patients had a HNP that suggested a cause that was later confirmed by testing, while another 21% of diagnoses were made by history and physical alone without any contributory tests. Just 14% of diagnoses were made based on testing without any history or physical findings, and 27 out of those 33 cases were reflux, which again, more than two-thirds of babies have whether or not they present with an ALTI. There is value for ruling things out. A negative blood culture can be just as valuable as a positive one. But to me, the biggest conclusion from the study is that 70% of the time, the history and physical was a significant part of making the diagnosis. That leads pretty well into the take-home points on alties and bruise. Babies are going to do things that make their parents worried. But for full-term kids who are more than 60 days old, or old enough preemies born after 32 weeks, with first-time episodes and a normal history and exam, there isn't a lot to be done beyond monitoring and reassurance. The evidence shows that testing, especially empiric broad testing, doesn't tend to be very useful in making a diagnosis. Instead, your guiding principle in dealing with alties and bruise should be to think things through. Get a thorough history, do a complete physical exam, and just generally be a doctor when you're deciding what to do next. If you do your due diligence, the evidence says you'll probably land in the right place. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. We're going to take some time off to work on the next round of episodes, so if there are any topics you want to hear about or new things you'd like us to try, send me an email at pedsoup, p 
P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. I've really enjoyed getting this podcast started, and I'm looking forward to keeping it going. And I want to thank all of you for helping make it successful. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back later with more Pede Soup.